I, you know, one thing that I'm thankful for about this community is even though I may be the pastor, the minister, whatever, the official guy, uh, all of you all are ministers and you do a great job of ministering to one another. Uh, so I don't have to carry the load the whole time, especially, you know, you get uh, events. Events can be overwhelming to us. Uh, that's why I don't do a lot of events, but camp's a special time. So we're preparing for that, but you guys have um, really taken care of one another through this whole pandemic, which is pretty cool. And it's kind of, kind of takes us where we left off in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here, here's the crazy thing is Timothy came back uh, from, from Thessalonica uh, via Athens, probably picked up Silas on the way, and then came to Corinth where Paul was in isolation by himself. And he gave him this report about the church in Thessalonica. And Paul is now spent, he's like immediately sat down and began to pen this letter to the church of Thessalonica to encourage them because uh, Timothy's reported that they've done some great things. They've got incredible faith. They've loved one another. They've supported each other. They've done exactly what you've done through this pandemic. But at the same, same time, they're dealing with issues and crisis moral decisions and things like that. So you get to the end of chapter three and he hasn't even dealt with those issues yet. So uh, you get to chapters four and five and he deals with those issues. But today we'll try to get up to those issues. So we left off last week with Paul just kind of validating himself. This is Paul, the guy that you've trusted, the guy that you know, the guy that has authority as an apostle. He's convincing the church in Thessalonica that it's all good. So we pick up in chapter 2, verse 13, <clears throat> says this, this is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, that would be Paul, Silas, and Timothy, you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God which also works effectively in you who believe. Paul was literally praising the Thessalonians for their spiritual wisdom. Here, here's the, the cool thing is, is obviously they didn't have the scripture like you have the scripture. You literally have a Bible maybe sitting in your hand or on your phone or on your device or things like that. And you can read the word of God. Well, what Paul has had to do with the church at Thessalonica is he's literally had to take the Old Testament and use it. This is what God has done through the Israelites. They gave them the law. They couldn't live up to the law. So a Savior came, the Messiah that they were looking for forever, and that Messiah was Jesus. And Paul literally explains to the people about how Jesus came and he did these miracles and they weren't done by him. They were done by the father in heaven out of his power. It's like Matt was talking about. He did things by another source. just like we live our life by another source. And so Paul's telling him all these things. Then Jesus was crucified. He was buried. He rose again and he appeared to over 500 witnesses. They all saw him with their very eyes. And then he ascended into heaven, and then a spirit came and lived inside of those who believed. That would be you. There's a spirit 
living inside of you. So literally, Paul is telling this message to the church at Thessalonica, and they believed it. They believed it. That was the word of God. They recognized and accepted the gospel as a word from God himself. It's just like this on, on Sunday mornings. I, I could sit here and pontificate. That's a big word. I could talk about uh, applications and three points and illustrations and come up with a nifty sermon. But the deal is I've been given the word of God, this Bible, and that's really all I want to teach. I just want to teach the Bible. I want to read it. I want to study it. I want to know it. And then I want to be able to talk about it. It may not be perfect. That's why you need to go back and check. You need to go read your Bible. They couldn't do that. They literally had the spirit inside of them and what Paul and Timothy and Silas were telling them. And now Timothy is reported to Paul. They're doing exactly what you told them to do. They're telling the stories about Jesus, how he was crucified, buried, and rose again, and how a spirit's living inside of them, and they're loving one another. He, the, the fact that this word is at work in you who believe, it just serves as a further validation, both of the, the truth of the gospel and of their faith, the church at Thessalonica. The present tense, when he says believe, it shifts this, the whole focus of that verse from the event of the Thessalonians' conversion to their present state of faith. Yeah, conversion is great when someone comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. When they can believe, and I think it has to do with learning their identity, as Matt was talking about, understanding their identity, believing their identity in Jesus and then even trusting their identity in Jesus. When you get to that point where you trust your identity in Jesus, it's that whole intimate relationship with the heavenly father that takes place. It's that level of spiritual maturity that we all desire, but trusting, believing is such a difficult thing. Verse 14, it says this, for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things <clears throat> from the people of your country. He's literally saying the gospel was worth suffering for. The persecution started in Jerusalem. Think about this for a second. The persecution started in Jerusalem. It spread throughout Israel and now has made its way to Macedonia. Like literally one event happened, one major event happened, and all of a sudden the persecution began to go worldwide. Hmm. Sound familiar? It says, it says this, since you have also suffered the same thing from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. You know, this is the only instance in which Paul charged the Jews with the death of Jesus. It's the only time in the whole Bible. 
the Jews is used as a reference, not to the people as a whole. That's kind of a big deal in today's world. When you say the Jews, you automatically think all the Jews. Well, that's not what Paul was referring to, nor even to those who remain Jews religiously, but to those Jews who actively oppose the spread of the gospel. That's who he's referring to when he says the Jews. Would you say that Paul was giving evidence of religious bigotry when he accused the Jews of killing Jesus and persecuting the Christians? No, he's simply stating a fact of history. Nowhere in the Bible does it accuse all the Jews of what a few Jews did in Jerusalem and Judea when Christ was crucified and the church founded. You know, the Romans also participated in the trial and death of Christ. And for that matter, It was our sins that sent him to the cross. It's hard to say that Paul was accusing all the Jews when we know it was just some of the Jews. In fact, there is no place in Christian faith for anti-Semitism to say that it was all the Jews. He's describing a few Jews. The first Christians were Jews, as was Paul the greatest Christian missionary. Paul himself loved his fellow Jews and sought to help them. So then, why did the leaders of Israel officially reject Jesus Christ and persecute his followers? Honestly, they were only repeating the sins of their fathers. Well, what do you mean by that if Jesus was the one and only? Well, think about all the prophets that came before Jesus in the Old Testament and how they persecuted and put to death even those prophets. The Jewish leaders that had Jesus crucified were only acting out as their fathers had done in generations before. Their ancestors had persecuted the prophets long before Jesus came to earth. That's what we call generational sin. It says, they displease God and are hostile to everyone. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Paul encouraged the suffering Christians by assuring them that their experiences were not new or isolated. This has gone on before. Others had suffered before them, and they were even suffering with them. This is not a one-time event. Verse 16, it says, By keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit, and wrath has overtaken them at last. That's a brutal verse right there. Paul was feeling a little bit sensitive to the criticism, apparently from those outside of the church that if Paul were really genuine, if he was really sincere, how come he hasn't come back to the church at Thessalonica? How come he hasn't returned? He's kind of taken their money and their attention, and he's left the scene. So Paul, this passage right here, logically is placed where it is 
after chapter two, verses one through 16, because Paul moves past the defense to now the present defense. He's really defending himself here. We get to verse 17. These next three paragraphs that we talk about, the end of chapter two and the beginning, the first two paragraphs in chapter three, Paul really is setting them up right here. This first paragraph, he's literally saying to the people in the church, don't give up on me. Don't give up on Paul. Verse 17, it says this. But as for us, brothers and sisters, again, he calls them brothers and sisters, which is like the third or fourth time. After we were forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart. That's an interesting statement that he makes there. The Greek term used there is aporphanizo, which is where we get our word orphans, aporphanizo, orphans. He's literally describing himself as an orphan, someone who is separated between people. It, obviously, the term orphan is, is often used in the context of a parent-child relationship in which it could describe the children who had been orphaned by their parents or parents who had lost their children. Right here in this very verse, Paul's taken this metaphor. Remember last week when he was talking about uh, being an infant and a nursing mother and uh, a father. He's taken the whole family metaphors, and now he's like saying, I'm an orphan. Paul's the orphan of the church at Thessalonica. Not that the church is an orphan from Paul, but Paul is an orphan from them. It's just another powerful picture, metaphor that Paul is using right here. <laughs> if you think about a young boy or girl who loses their parents and can't see them, they often start crying. I can imagine that's what Paul was doing, is he was crying from the absence of missing his family in Thessalonica. And this is the emotion that Paul is trying to evoke by using this metaphor. Paul says, you know I'm like a little child. I've been torn away, I've been orphaned from you and I'm grieving this separation. He says, but as for us, brothers and sisters, after we are forced to leave you for a short time in person, not in heart, we greatly desired and made every effort to return and see you face to face, face to face. I can't wait until we're done with Zoom meetings. When we literally can get together and in this pandemic and the time of doing this screen to screen, you know, yesterday I went to an open house and I, I hugged someone yesterday and you could feel the emotion between us, between the two of us. I, I even heard their spouse behind them gasp because the spouse was refraining from hugging people. And it wasn't that he was afraid of hugging people. It was that it's like, oh, I can't hug you and I want to so bad. You see, this is literally what Paul is trying to say to his people. I'm going to make every effort to see you face to face. This letter that I'm pinning to you is not good enough. I want to be with you. I want to touch you. Verse 18, he says, so he wanted to come to you. 
even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Now he's changed the metaphor from a family thing to really a military metaphor when he says he's hindered us. It means he blocked us. He dug out a spot in the road. That's used to what they do in ancient times of war. They would dig out the road so they couldn't get there. And we know that's the case because later on in chapter three, when he's saying your prayer, he's asking the Lord to make a way for them, like fix the road, Lord, and make a way for them. Think about this. It says, uh, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. <laughs> if you said to someone, I love you, that would be one way of expressing your love. But, he, you know, when I write you notes or things like that, I say, I love you much. A lot of times people just say, love you. And they don't use the I intentionally. I use the I, I love you. And then I add even emphasis to that. I love you much. But what if Paul's really trying to say here, I really, 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 really love you. And that's kind of what Paul does in this whole paragraph. He kind of goes over the top. He uses excessively emotive language here in order to drive home his, his truth to make sure that there's no doubt in his readers' minds all about his genuine love for him. Look, look, look back real quick. He says, brothers and sisters. He's like, in person, not in heart. I, I want to see you in person, not in heart. I really love you. He says, we greatly desired, we greatly desired, and we're making every effort to see you face to face. So we wanted to come to you time and time, not just once, but we think about it all the time. Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul is saying, I really, really love you. Man, he's expressing himself in this letter. He must truly love that church. And then we get to chapter three. We change paragraphs. He says, don't give up on me. Don't give up on me. Now he's getting ready to say, don't give up on the faith. Don't give up on what we've taught you. Verse one, it says, therefore, when we could no longer stand it, we thought it was better to be left alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. That's interesting. He's like, Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel. Did, did you really need to explain who Timothy was? Were there multiple Timothys? <laughs> no. He's literally affirming Timothy with that statement. Our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. He's really affirming him as their friend and as one who has authority among the church. You need to listen to Timothy because we believe in him. It says, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and to encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken from these afflictions. That whole word afflictions, that gets uh, a little confusing. It's the Greek word thalipsis. 
And it's not referring to the bad things that happen to all people that come from living in a fallen world. I go outside, I've got a flat tire or it's raining on my open house. It's not talking about that. What they were involved with in the ancient world was not necessarily getting thrown into jail for their afflictions or thrown to the lion's arena. Instead, the afflictions that Paul's talking about here, it's more accurate to think about ridicule, ostracization, or maybe spontaneous acts of violence. Sound familiar? But that kind of social harassment, the key concept that these early Christians were experiencing, he's saying, you're going to have afflictions. I know that you've already experienced these social afflictions. And it was not because their pagan neighbors were upset that they worshiped Jesus. No, it was the fact that they worshiped only Jesus. You see, it was the exclusivity of the Christian faith that got them into trouble. So Christians, by not participating in the pagan practices of the day, often wounded public sensibilities. And it led them to being charged with being atheist. Yeah, you can worship Jesus, but you got to worship all these other gods as well, or else you're an atheist if you don't believe in all these other things. Much like today, if you say, Jesus is my sole focus, you will be called out for not taking a stand on one of the many social agendas that is happening in our world right now. Church, are you, are you hearing me? Paul was literally saying to the church at Thessalonica, encouraging the church to continue their practice of focusing on their faith in Jesus alone. This is what Matt was talking about, how we get things kind of twisted and get things kind of backwards. Paul's saying to the church, focus, focus, focus. Don't be distracted by all that is going on around you. It is your faith in Jesus that is going to allow you to love and to serve others. Not your words, not your posts, not your selfish motives, not your agendas but your faith alone in Jesus Christ. Stay focused. Stay focused. If you stay focused on Jesus, you will do the right thing. Hmm. It says, for you yourselves know that you were appointed to this, this being the affliction. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction. And as you know, it happened. Paul is saying that his reader shouldn't be discouraged by the suffering since they already know that these things are a normal part of the Christian life. He's told them he, they've watched him suffer. They've watched the afflictions happen to, to Paul and to Silas and to Timothy. Paul was encouraging these Thessalonians in the midst of their suffering to make sure that they remain strong in their faith and to remind them that something he said many times, 
and that it is normal for the followers of Jesus Christ to experience the pushback. You will experience pushback even today. Verse 5, for this reason, when I could no longer stand it, he just repeated verse 1, when he, I can no longer stand it, it's like he, the actual word is like watertight, it's like leaking out of a vessel. Paul loved the church at Thessalonica so much that it was cracking, that it was leaking. It was like a ship or a bowl, and it just couldn't contain it. He's like, I can no longer stand it. I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. Paul saying, I know how the evil one works. He wants to distract you. He wants you to lose the focus off of your faith. Don't lose this game with the evil one. Stay focused. I'm sending you Timothy. I sent you Timothy to encourage you. And then we get to this last paragraph here in chapter three. And he's now said, okay, don't give up on me. Don't give up on your faith. And then he changes it. All of a sudden he goes, because God hasn't given up on you. Church, you need to hear this today. God hasn't given up you. Just like the two troubles in the paragraphs, one and two, that we just talked about. Like, about they obviously stem from Satan's evil supernatural powers. There's evil going on in this world today. But then all of a sudden he changed it. And the solution to the two troubles is this. God's supernatural grace. Watch verse six. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. Literally, Timothy has returned, told Paul everything. And Paul's encouraging them about their faith. So he sits down immediately and begins to write them this letter. He says, Timothy, he reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, once again, in all our distress and affliction, we are encouraged about you through your faith. You see, faith and love were and still are the distinctive characteristics of those who are true members of the community of the redeemed. You can read it all through Paul's letters, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, Philemon. You read it. The faith and love are true characteristics of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Verse 8 says this. For we now, for now we live. If you stand firm in the Lord, oh my goodness, for now we live. I think I've quoted it a couple times this week, that quote from Braveheart. It says, not every man, it says, every man dies, but not every man lives. Paul's literally saying, for now we live. If you stand firm in the Lord, you want life, you want abundant life, stay focused on faith. Stay focused on Jesus. This is the adventure. This is real life. Verse 9, it says, 
How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before, your, before our God because of you? As we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. You see, there truly is something about seeing a person face to face. There's something about touching them, hugging them, having conversation without restrictions of letter writing or social distancing or social networking or seeing them through a screen. We always long for the reunion. This weekend, my sister and my niece are flying in from Tulsa to go hang out with us at camp. I can't wait. My daughter's coming home from Nashville, Tennessee to hang out with us for the week. I can't wait for the reunion. We're taking 66 people to camp next Sunday, and it's going to be a marvelous reunion a gathering that we can just hang out with one another, eat together, sleep together, laugh together, cry together, study the word together, just be together. And then we get to reunite on Sunday, July the 12th at Pinheads. That's right. This is what Paul is saying. He's like, I get to see you. I want to see you. I'm thankful for all that's happened during this season of life, but I can't wait to see you face to face. And literally, as he closes this little paragraph out, he says, in the meantime, I'll still thank God for you. While I wait to see you face to face, I thank God for your faith and for your love. Stay focused. Jesus, this is my prayer for those that are listening this morning. That with everything that's going on in this world, we can be so easily distracted. That we know faith comes from you, that you would give us faith, more faith. That we can trust you in that faith. And that we can continue to love one another because the spirit in us allows us to know our own identity and see the identity of those that are brothers and sisters that we can take care of one another. And we look forward to the day when we are absolutely reunited as a community. Lord, keep everybody safe. Keep everybody healthy. Keep us clean. Keep us focused. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.